Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, and today is another Saturday morning rerun episode where we take a classic episode of Tech Stuff and we play it for you in case you didn't have a chance to listen to it when it originally aired. I mean, this show's been going on for 10 years, so I know not everybody can do a deep dive into the archives and This one, I think, is really, really exciting. Now, throughout the history of Tech Stuff, I've had the opportunity to have lots of different interesting guests on the show, including other hosts of How Stuff Works shows. And in this episode, Holly Fry, one of the co-hosts of Stuff You Missed in History class, joined the show to talk about an enormous patent war. And I'm not talking about Samsung and Apple. I'm talking about sewing machines. Yep, the humble sewing machine was the centerpiece of a patent war that got pretty ugly. And Holly and I talked not just about that, but about the technology and its cultural impact. This episode originally published on October 13th, 2014. I hope you enjoy this classic episode of Tech Stuff. So before we jump into the sordid history of the sewing machine, I thought I would uh, remind folks what a patent is, what it's all about. So patents are, it's a set of exclusive rights granted by a government, some form of agency that has authority, to an inventor or an assignee for the use of an invention. Now, an invention does not have to be a complete thing all by itself. It could be a component of a thing. Like if you were to have... Uh, a full invention. Uh, let's say it's a, 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 a washing machine because we've done a tech stuff episode about washing machines and you come up with a way to improve washing machines so that they wash clothes uh, more thoroughly or without as much uh, bashing around. So the clothing doesn't take as much of a beating and you come up with that that improvement and then you patent it. You can do that. That's perfectly accept- acceptable. And then any washing machine that would use that particular improvement would have to either have been made by you or have received your permission to use that specific technology. Yes. So patents can be for a full invention with all the different components, or it can be just a tiny little thing that's an improvement. The The point of it is the reason why you would want to patent it is that you get those exclusive rights to use that technology. Now, in return for that, you have to disclose how that technology works. You submit a patent application that has a full description of the the mechanism and the purpose of your invention, and that becomes publicly available. And once the patent expires, which they do, anyone can access that information and make use of it. But during the course of that patent, the, the lifespan of that patent, it's all you, boss. They got to come through you. Yeah, although that is an interesting one related to what we're talking about today, because there were several instances on the road to the sewing machine actually becoming a fully fledged thing Mm -hmm. where there were some fibs told in the patent filings that they could keep their proprietary information to themselves. Right. Yeah. So when people tried to replicate them, they did not always work. Right. See, you could if you wanted to, if you invented something, there's nothing that requires you to get a patent. You could keep it secret and say, this magical technology is mine and mine alone. But the danger of that, of course, is if someone gets hold of it and figures out how it works, they could then make the same thing with, and you would have no protection. Not only could they make the same thing, they could file a patent for it, and then you would no longer be able to use the thing you invented. Yeah, it's all about first rights. Yeah, so uh, as it turns out, and we haven't even gotten into the complication of filing for a patent in one country versus <laughs> filing for a patent in another, but... 
we we've hemmed and hawed long enough about patents. Let's start off. Tell me what what was sewing before the sewing machine. Well, uh, most people would probably recognize it. If they thought about pre-sewing machine sewing, they would think of a needle and thread. But even way before that, yeah. there were people using bones and sticks to kind of poke holes into fabrics, usually leathers, and then they would pass a lace through. It was not all one continuous thing where the lace was attached to the, the bone or stick. Right. And then they added the eye, that circle that the, whatever your lacing material passes through. Right. The, the thing that confounds me whenever I have to thread a needle. <laughs> Many people say that. Yeah. I think you either got it or you don't. Yeah, I, I, I don't got it. <laughs> um, I, I hope I keep it forever because I have a few friends who are saying they're getting to the age where their eyesight <laughs> isn't letting them keep it anymore. But yeah, so that uh, eventually that eye was added and people were able to do it all in one fell swoop where they poked the hole and passed the um, binding material through. And that also developed things like embroidery. But it wasn't really until the Industrial Revolution that stitching became mechanized. And even pre-Industrial Revolution in the mid-1700s, mm-hmm. where kind of industry was first starting to get seeded, mm-hmm. is really where we started having first people on record actually filing things. Right. So you have Charles Weisenthal here who who received a patent for a needle for a sewing machine. But it had a, a distinct disadvantage in that it was a, a design for a needle for a machine that didn't exist. Yeah, he just really felt like he had the needle situation worked out. <laughs> and eventually the rest would follow. Right, you've got to really nail the needle is his, is his pr- uh, approach, Which right? is true. Is uh, the true. needle, how it came to be where it is today, really took a lot of iterations. And his needle um, had was pointed on both ends and it had an eye, but the eye was in the middle, which is not, if anybody knows a modern right. sewing machine or hand sewing needle, the eye is usually not not in the middle. Right. So then we move forward to 1790. We have Thomas Saint, who uh, I love the title of his patent. <laughs> we talked about this in the history podcast. It's, it's, it's so succinct. It's, it's so delightful. Yeah. And just completely verbose. Do you want to read it? Oh, sure. So let, me, let me do this. All right. So he's an English cabinet maker. So uh, <laughs> sorry, listeners. Here we go. <clears throat> An entire new method of making and completing shoes, boots, splatterdashes, clogs, and other articles by means and tools and mach- by means of tools and machines also invented by me for that purpose and of certain compositions of the nature of Japan or varnish, which will be very advantageous in many useful applications. End quote. Don't you just feel like this is sewing as described by a Monty Python sketch? It does feel like John Cleese <laughs> is the person who needs to deliver that patent title. For me, it's Terry Jones, but we all have our oh, favorites. That's fair. You, you, you went more Welsh. That's all right. Everything's fine with that. So he's actually describing three different machines in this patent. Okay. Um, so the second of the three, which is why it's so crazy wordy. Right. I mean, Japan and varnish, which are the words used for like these uh, coding me- um, methods, have nothing to do with stitching. But he right. kind of lumped everything together. Well, and, he, and he was a cabinet maker. So. I think maybe he didn't like to file a lot of paperwork. Yeah, it's probably one of those things where he thought, oh. Goodness gracious, this is a lot of work. Let's let's just lump it all together, shall yeah. we? One very wordy document will cover me. Yeah. Uh, so the second part of his patent was actually the one for stitching. And it really wasn't terribly practical. Uh, it had a lot of components that we actually associate with modern sewing machines. So it had the arm with the needle. It had continuous thread from a spool. Uh, and it had a table 
set up that the cloth would sit on. And those all still persist in some form or another. Uh, but his is a case where there's no actual example of his machine having been built. Mm-hmm. Although uh, in 1873, Newton Wilson, who was from Great Britain, found the plans and he did build this machine, but it did not work. And this is one of those ones that we talked about a little bit ago yeah. where the the suspicion is that he didn't entirely disclose what he was getting right. at. Leave a few things out of the, the patent design so that folks don't automatically go out there and actually start making one. Uh, yeah, one thing about patents, by the way, there's no guarantee that your design has to work. I mean, it has to, it has to be reasonably, you know, the p- people at the patent office have to reasonably believe that you, you believe it will work the way you've designed it. But you don't have to prove. Yeah, there's not a proofing stage. It's <laughs> your design. Yeah, you don't have to bring one in and say, well, here, let me put it in motion and show you that all the parts move the way I've described it in the patent. Uh, it really is just meant to prevent other people from making that same design without your permission. First. Yep. All right. Well, then in 1804, we've got this story about Thomas Stone and James Henderson, who were issued a patent in uh, France for uh, their own kind of sewing machine, right? Yeah. It kind of created an overcast stitch. So if you don't know what that is. I do not. Um, if you see like a situation where two pieces of cloth are bound together and there's a stitch that passes through each one and kind of spirals around the edges and then back through. Okay. That's an overcast stitch. Okay. All right. Um, so this was similar. It's also called a whip stitch when you do it by hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was very simple, uh, but it could work on all different kinds of fabrics, and it was able to stitch curves. Oh, okay. So it's not just a straight line like some of the other des- devices we'll be talking about. Correct. Like a lot of them will only go in a straight line, but this one could handle curves. That's and pretty cool. The one big drawback of it, though, was that it did not have a continuous thread feed. So there was a lot of stopping and going yeah. and re-threading of needles. Right. Pudding. So it saved time, we think, theoretically. Right. I say that with a question mark on purpose. Right. Maybe it saves time for someone who just really hates the motion of actually making a stitch. Well, or if you're doing like large scale things or sure. like leathers, it and would probably help. So that same year, you have John Duncan of Glasgow here patenting an embroidery machine, which is not quite the same thing as a stitching machine. Correct. Uh, I mean, it does do stitches, yeah. but it's not the same sort of utilitarian things that would hold together pants. Right. <laughs> uh, that would I've, just make the pants beautiful. I've, I've learned that through bitter experience. <laughs> uh, in 1807, we have Edward Walter Chapman and Walter Chapman. It's not confusing at all. Receiving a British patent, uh, 3078. That's another thing that I think is interesting. You look at the history of sewing machines and you look at those patent numbers. Yeah. And when they're still in the four digit range, <laughs> that's incredible. If guys go to the patent, uh, go to like Google search for patents and look up any patent that's been issued over the last couple of years. We're talking in the millions here. Yeah. And this is when they were still in the thousands, which is pretty incredible. It, it really does show that the patent industry here was very young. Oh, yeah. Uh, This was the one that allowed a machine that had a needle that would not have to pass all the way through the fabric. It could just puncture it uh, slightly and then pull back out and make the stitch that way. Right, which is how modern machines still work right. for the most part. Uh, I think there are a couple of specialty machines that do different things. But yeah, so it had two needles. One, as you said, punched in and passed the thread down. Another kind of shuttled through it and then it got pulled back up so that oh, they okay. would have um, continuous stitching via these two different thread feeds. Cool. And then we have uh, what my favorite name on our list. It's one here. of my favorites, too. 1830. So it's Barthélemy Timonier. Oh, I love a good French name. Yeah, that's a great one. Is 
There's two THs in there, and <laughs> as I recall, that's a hard T, but I could be wrong. It is. <laughs> it is. And his machine made a chain stitch. And there are yep. still machines very similar to this functioning today. Mm-hmm. They're not used a whole lot because it's one of those things. You may have even uh, come across them periodically if you ever have, like, an article of clothing that's maybe not super pricey. You maybe yep. bought it at, you know, a cheapy store, and you pull one thread, and, and the whole thing starts on. coming out. Yeah. That's often a chain stitch. Right, Because right. it's the one thread holding everything together. So there's nothing stopping it from continuing to unravel. Right. That's what I always get nervous now whenever I see a loose thread. And I, <laughs> I, I'm more of a snipper than a than a tugger at this I'm point. I'm not. I'm a yanker. <laughs> OK. But I know but, I can fix it if it all goes awry. That's right. Yeah. For me, it's it's fixing means going out and buying a new one. We'll come right back to our discussion about the great patent wars and the sewing machine in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. What I love about this story is it's interesting because it's a real life story that mirrors something that is um, a, a popular misconception. And what I mean by that is in the story, you have Timonier who had a shop in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had uh, lots of these different machines, 80 of them working at a time and tailors, people who sewed by hand stormed his store yeah. and destroyed some of the machinery because they didn't want to be put out of a job. And the reason why I say this is interesting is that there's a story that we have told on Tech Stuff before that is erroneous. And uh, and in fact, I have been guilty of of pushing this forward. The idea of sabotage yeah. being named after sabot, as in the French word for, for shoe. shoe. Mm-hmm. The story is that you had... Uh, Often it was it's told about weavers who came in and threw their shoes into large uh, mechanized looms in order to foul the the workings and destroy them. Uh, as it turns out, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> the first the first appearance of the word sabotage doesn't come until in the written word, as far as I can tell, until 1897, which tells me that this incident, which happened in around the the mid 1800s could have given birth to a word involving <laughs> tailors that would have replaced sabotage, and they just yeah. didn't capitalize on it. I want it to include Timonier somehow. Like, <laughs> Timonier-angers. I, I got totally timonier today at work. Man, it hurts. I walked in, and they just ambushed me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so they came and destroyed his shop, and he had to flee... And he did get financial backing uh, so that he could continue his work and develop new machines. But unfortunately, uh, and he got some additional patents as well, both in France and in Britain. But the revolution kind of caused his legacy to get put on the back burner. Yeah. He kind of got there, robbed. There were some important things that people were attending to at the time. Yeah, not so much with the let's make machines. Now we've got an American inventor coming up next. So uh, let's just take a moment to go uh, America. <laughs> well, and he becomes very important in the patent battles. Mm-hmm. So this is Walter Hunt you're talking about here. Yeah. So he made a machine that uh, it created a lock stitch. It used two thread sources, very similar to the bobbin and spool method you would see on modern machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you know, of course, was different than the single thread chain stitch of Timonier's successful machines. Mm-hmm. And he kind of was uh, a busy bee. He had a lot of inventions going at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't like this sewing machine was his baby and he had really put his heart and soul into it. He was kind of like, no, nah, nobody's ever going to be interested in this. And he sold it. So he sold the patent off to... He uh, didn't even have the patent. He just sold oh, the plans he sold off. The, I go. That's right. He didn't even patent this <laughs> invention. 
He's like, eh, yeah, you know, I could use the money. He sold it to a man named George A. Aerosmith and was basically like, yeah, well, you know, I'll fund some other projects with whatever huh. I make off of this. Interesting. It's not that important. <laughs> um, as we said, he comes up later and becomes very important. So remember him. And we'll also point out his machine was one that Jonathan referenced earlier that would only go in straight lines. You couldn't really work curves with it. Right. So uh, that that certainly limits its um, usefulness. Uh, now, we also have to acknowledge the fact that there's a challenge in really talking about the history of the sewing machine because of an event that happened in that the mid-1800s, early to mid-1800s. Yeah, we had a little bit of a fire yeah. in the patent office. Yeah, as it turns out, patents are flammable. Yes. No and, one had patented know. the, in, the the not the inflammable, that would also be flammable. <laughs> But the impossible to burn patent. Yeah, uh, and it wasn't a time where they were making tons of backups. It was yeah. kind of like you file it and you go on your way. Because remember, right, yeah, we're still in the there. thousands. They haven't really yeah. gotten their game figured out yet. Right. Not to mention the fact that they're, you know, making making duplicates is is no easy task at this time. No. So they thought, well, it's safe enough. Yeah, that fire was in 1836. So they really did not have a plan in place to keep duplicate copies. And right. as a consequence, there are actually a lot, uh, some sources will say that there are a lot of kind of partial patent documents that still exist that like, they mention a needle or they mention something sewing related, but like the attribution portion of the document has been too damaged and they don't right. know who filed it. So there could be families out there that could have, for all we know, inherited great wealth, but we'll but, never know yeah, because the, the capriciousness of fire robbed them of their place in history. Fire and its and ways. Possibly on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, in 1842, we've got John J. Greenough who uh, is the first guy, first American to get a patent for the sewing machine that we have a record of anyway. Yeah. Um, so even though he made his invention after uh, Hunt had, Hunt had not patented it. And as you have in your notes here, the Aerosmith apparently never got around to patenting it either. <laughs> so uh, this is the first one in the American patent system. Yeah, he uh, there was no replication of his. He basically kind of was one and done. Yeah, so he made a prototype and then not a production model. Yeah, I, there's we don't know if he didn't get funding or he just abandoned the idea and moved on to something else. But uh, it was only a year later when the second U.S. patent for a sewing machine came about, and that was issued to Benjamin W. Bean. Which is a great name. I know. <laughs> um, and he created a unique development in that his machine was the first that actually fed the fabric through gears. So for the stitchers in the house, all three of us, um, <laughs> that's similar to feed dogs. And if you don't stitch, what a feed dog is, if you've ever looked at a sewing machine, you may see these two. They almost look like little feet that come up and kind of kick at your fabric as you're sewing. And they have rigid edges. Right. And that's kind of pulling your fabric through as you go. Right. So you don't have to put through as much effort. You don't have to worry about misguiding the fabric. Right. Yeah. So uh, it helps feed the fabric through as you're stitching. Yeah. Yes, sometimes it creates great drama and it eats fabric, but not very often. Yeah. Um, and his also had a clamp mechanism to attach it to a table, so that was also a new development. Oh, cool. Uh, and there are still machines made that do that. Also that year, in 1843, we got George H. Corliss, who, uh, you know, he was also a busybody making, <laughs> making a steam engine. Yeah. That was, that was pretty cool. Uh, we did a full episode in Tech Stuff on steam engines, so if you guys are are big into that and you really want to know about the development of the steam engine. Here's a, here's an interesting little fact. The original steam engines didn't push with steam. They rather would pull by letting steam condense and create a vacuum, uh, thus pulling a piston down rather than pushing a piston out. 
but we go into full detail on tech stuff. So oh, I don't so need exciting. to don't need to redo the whole thing. Steam. This is just pretty cool it's, stuff. It's, it's very, it is exciting. It's uh, actually not cool. It's actually quite hot. But but um bum. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so Corliss had what's considered the third U.S. sewing machine patent. Mm-hmm. Uh, his performed what is called a saddle stitch, which is a specialized stitch that's used to this day to join leather together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of keeps it all stable. If anybody has ever tried to sew with leather, if you've had like a leather pouch or anything, uh, it can present some challenges mm. uh, in terms of how it because it's so rugged usually and tough, it will chew on threads and, or even if you have a lacing, the lacing, even though it's leather also will kind of get chewed up over time. Gotcha. So a saddle stitch kind of gives you a, a, a tighter stitch and it prevents some of that friction. Hmm. Okay. Cool. And then, uh, also just a year later in 1844, we've got James Rogers getting the fourth U.S. sewing machine patent. And you may all wonder why we're covering every single patent. The patent wars will make all clear, everybody. <laughs> it's going to become really apparent in a minute. It's, it's, it's important because, again, we're, we're trying to illustrate the fact that a lot of these patents were not revolutionary devices that completely reinvented the machine. They were sometimes incremental improvements that had a remarkable difference from earlier machines, but it was one tiny element, right? Yeah. Not necessarily a full reworking. Yeah, uh... So, yeah, James Rogers' patent was really only had a tiny change to Bean's design. Uh-huh. And that was that the gears were kind of in a different place. And that allowed him to be able to design a different needle that was shaped a little more simply and would be easier to replicate. Um, and so pretty much every patent that came after this used this simpler setup right. that built on Bean's design. So it really set uh, a precedent here. But now we're getting to the star of the show. Okay, who's the star of the show? Because I'm so, not, not being a big sewing machine guy. Uh, but you watched Schoolhouse Rock growing up, right? I, I did. He was in it. Was he? Yeah. In so, the Mother Necessity episode. Oh. Um, I'll have to go watch my DVDs. There's a whole, Elias, can you help me with my sewing? Oh, uh, so it's an Elias here uh-huh. we're talking about. Yes. Elias Howell Jr. Yes. All right. And there's even a play on his name where he tells her he's going to fix everything. And she says, Elias Howe. And it's very witty. Ah, uh, yes. To the sewing nerds. In the right. All, all three of you are all laughing. All three of us cackling up a storm. Off. So Elias Howe was uh, born in Spencer, Massachusetts in 1819. Uh, and when he was a teenager, he decided to go and seek his fortune as a machinist, which was a brand new job in the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, he was kind of he had some bravado. He was not afraid of kind of breaking out on his own and making his way in the world. He certainly didn't appear to be shy once we get into the patent wars. <laughs> no, he was a very smart man. Yeah. <laughs> so he he's going to uh, he ends up as a machinist overhearing some talk about the idea of a, of a sewing machine and starts to kind of apply his own uh, ingenuity. How would I achieve this sort of thing? So he's important to remember. Yeah. And he um, so he was granted the fifth U.S. patent uh, in September of 1846. And it's one of those things, though, I have to laugh because every year when September comes around, you see the today on this day, Elias yeah. Howe invented the sewing machine. And I'm like, back up the truck. That's right. not entirely accurate. Right. It's like, like you know, Edison invented the light bulb. Yeah. All right. No, Edison improved it's, and it's made It's not it a practical. eureka moment yeah. where it comes from nowhere. Although he did sometimes say that, like, he had it kind of 
fully universally on his own. That's very Tesla like too. Mm. Yeah. Um, so this was patent number 4,750 in the United States. You know, the previous one we gave the number to was the British patent. So in, in both cases, you see that these are very, very early on during the uh, patent office's existence. Yeah. Their numbering schemes were kind of neck and neck in yeah. terms of where they yeah. were at in terms of, um, uh, accession order. Mm-hmm. Um, so this patent was actually his second version of the machine that he patented. He had another prototype a year before that was capable of sewing, but he um, he fine-tuned it a little bit more. And Howe's patent is very important because it makes five very specific claims about how the machine is going to work. And they come up a lot <laughs> in, in the, court battles later. Right. Yeah, so this is where I was talking about how you can make claims within a patent and those claims will protect elements of your invention. And uh, claims can be everything from specific physical, uh, mechanical ways that the machine works to a specific method, like a, a, a an implementation. We see that today in ways that are, are less, um, they're, they're more difficult to understand. Because if you're talking about a physical machine, you can say the physical machine does it in this way, and you can see whether or not the machine is actually doing it in that way. When we talk about today, we're talking about stuff like, you know, resizing images by pinching or, mm-hmm. or moving your fingers uh, further apart from each other. And it starts to get a little wibbly wobbly timey wimey <laughs> when you are trying to say, oh, well, this is this is a method that is unique uh, that I came up with and no one else can use it unless they come through me. So it's a, it, it's one of those evolutions of the patent office that we're still trying to kind of Reconcile. Yeah, it's not all black and white, which yeah. is why you get into these huge battles and arguments and things go to court and you hear about Apple having to pay money, but then, then Samsung has to pay all right. the money. And right. Yeah. And, and it sometimes it just, sometimes everyone just ends up like, well, let's just all say we gave each other the money we were supposed <laughs> to and call the day. But anyway, there were these five elements. Uh, did you want to cover any of them? Uh, you have all of them written out here. They are, and they're written out long because I cut and pasted it from a, another document. But yeah. I'll kind of do the, the short version. Okay. So the first was uh, he describes how he's going to form a seam by using a, a curved needle to go through the cloth and um, a bobbin to kind of connect to that and, and make the um, the stitch similar to how we've talked about before, this two-thread version. Mm-hmm. The second is how the thread is going to get lifted and pass through the needle eye. There's a lifting rod involved that's very important. Uh, the third is how the thread is going to be uh, passed out by the shuttle. So it has a lot to do with the tension and how it passes passes through mm-hmm. at a consistent rate. The fourth is um, how a couple of levers go together and enact their sort of mechanisms on the string mm-hmm. or the thread that's involved. Mm-hmm. And the fifth is how the cloth is held in place by a baster plate, uh, which is still a thing that happens. Like now, if you drop your foot down on your machine, it's kind of pressing the cloth onto the plate of your machine. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps it from going, just flying away when you're trying to stitch on it. Right. Uh, very important, as I understand it, in the sewing process. <laughs> yes. Most machines made today won't, won't stitch at all if you don't have the presser foot down. Right. Because they know They'll just be wasting everyone's time. Right. So Hal didn't meet with immediate success with this design, actually. He uh, tried for a while to get people here in the United States excited about it, and no one seemed to really give him much attention. So he ended up selling the patent rights to a uh, 
or at least the British patent rights, I should say, to William Thomas for the princely sum of 250 British pounds sterling. Uh, and uh, I like I like the other note here. He also adapted his machine to make umbrellas and corsets. That's fabulous. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm in the market for both right now. So, <laughs> Well, when we talked about this uh, on history, Tracy yeah. was saying, I never thought about it before, but umbrellas and corsets really are quite a lot alike. Yeah. In that, you know, you have a casing and sure. you have these rigid elements that pass through it and hold it all in shape. Yeah. And at this point, it would have been all steel bone corsetry. So it was very similar to an umbrella. Right. Except that the, the main difference, at least in my experience, is that it's a relief to have an umbrella and a relief to get rid of a corset. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> Corsets are good for you if they're well-fitted. They protect your back. They give you great posture. Those tight lacers are a whole different universe. Yeah, I worked at the Georgia Renaissance <laughs> Festival, so I have a very specific yeah, uh, no, no. experience of, of watching ladies. No, no, a good foundation corset will keep your clothes in place. It holds up all those Victorian layers. If it's a Victorian corset, so I'm kind of going from the time period we're talking about. They're they're not mystery torture devices. Well, really, we're not intended for that use. We'll, we'll clearly need to have you come in and give a talk. Because <laughs> those ladies, let me tell there you. There is a lot of technology and physics in a corset. I'm sure there are. You either got a support from below or from above. It's fabulous. Well, moving on <laughs> in the, the evolution of the sewing machine, we move up to 1848 and the sixth U.S. sewing machine patent from John A. Bradshaw. <laughs> Which was a little bit snarky. Was it? Yeah, he talks about house patent design uh-huh. in his patent and kind of says that it's bungling and it's an encumbrance to the action of the machine when he talks about the needle. So not only can Hal not get manufacturers interested in his device, he has the next uh, patent uh, petitioner completely diss him totally in the trash in his work even while he's building on it he's still kind of like eh, he was onto something but i'm i really have this thing yeah. figured out like okay well n- i can tell you why it didn't do great <laughs> with the manufacturers <laughs> wonderful so 1849 we get how coming back to the united states uh he had gone to england like we said to say, to sell the british patent off and he when he comes back he sees that um that that what had been kind of a quiet little tiny niche industry was starting to take off. Yeah. Uh, the seventh patent for the sewing machine had been issued to Charles Morey and Joseph B. Johnson in 1849. And they were really some of the first two that were like, we need to start selling this and making a bunch of them. And even before they received their patent, they were selling machines. Uh-huh. Which is perfectly fine. I mean, it's not yeah, like yeah. you don't have to have a patent. In fact, you often will see today things like patent pending. Yep. Where people are trying to capitalize on an idea because uh, patent applications and patent grants can take a long time, especially today, now that you have uh, you know, an exponentially larger number of applications coming into the patent office than you did way back in the mid-1800s. Yeah, there were some other people that were trying to improve on uh, Maury and Johnson's machine mm-hmm. in the middle of 1849, so that same year they got their patent there was a man named Jotham S. Conant, and he was issued a patent uh, based on a modification he made to their machine, which just kind of altered the way that the cloth was held during the stitching. But his never really went anywhere. He didn't manufacture. He didn't sell. Mm-hmm. But that same day that he got his patent, uh, another important person was getting a patent. John Batchelder. So, yeah, this was the continuous sewing mechanism and uh, an endless belt to feed the cloth into the machine. Yeah. Thank you, John. 
yeah. <laughs> for me to you. <laughs> yeah, to, to make sure that you don't have to put in all that work yourself. Yeah. But the really important thing is who Batchelder sold, sold his patent to. And here we come up to the first name in this podcast <laughs> that I recognize. I am Singer. The yeah. Singer sewing machine. Everybody is, knows that one. Well, I mean, you know, my, my, my grandmother and my, my mom both had singer sewing machines. In fact, the, there's the both of them still exist. And my parents, it's a, it's like a little uh, table that's next to the front door of their house. Yep. But uh, it's an old singer sewing machine that that's operated by by pedal. Yep. Uh, so yeah, it's it's the one of those names that I I think most people associate it with sewing pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, because I mean it's still a name. So. Yep, they're still making. You don't hear about a lot of how machines these days, but no. singers still going. We have a little bit more to say about the Singer Sewing Machine and patents, but before we get to that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. We finally reached the point now where things have come to a head. We've got the the snippy little patent uh, applications out of the way. Now it's time to really get down to fisticuffs, legally speaking. And uh, it's... The 1850s, where we get that first enormous patent war, and it all has to do with the fact that these different little elements that have been improved upon over time, there are a lot of arguments about who actually had ownership of those ideas and in what implementations and uh, who was owed money by whom, and it got ugly. Really, really ugly. So there was a um, a man by the name of Alan B. Wilson, and he, in 1850, was working on this lock stitch machine, uh, very similar to the modern machine, and his mechanism could also do, go forward and backwards, which mm-hmm. we had not encountered before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he applied for his patent. He had made a second prototype model, and the people that owned the Bradshaw patent from 1848 got wind of this and were like, hold on a minute. Por favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we own some of the concepts you're using. The double pointed shuttle that made up a part of his machine was something that was part of their patent. Uh, they claimed. And right. that claim was not accurate. It was complete bunk. So however, they, they think, well, let's throw a wrench into this one. <laughs> however, they had dollars and Wilson didn't. So he could not fight them. Oh, so we get down to using the old idea of well, if if we can't if we can't uh, suppress this idea one way, we can just kind of run them out because we've got we've got a larger uh, reserve of cash. Yes. Ugh. So uh, he had to give up half of his claim to A.P. Klein and Edward Lee, who at that point held the Bradshaw patent. Uh, and that was in late 1850 in mm-hmm. November. And then after a little while, he just sold them the rest of his interest. He didn't want to mess with it anymore. He retained very limited rights. That's a very sad story there where he essentially he was beaten down. Yeah, he really had the goods in terms of his invention to have been the singer of this story in terms of name recognition, but because he just didn't have the means to fight anybody that made a claim against him, he and, vanished into history. And to rub salt into the wound... They would use his name in official advertisements. Yeah, people recognized that he had invented something really pretty exciting Uh because it could do these things that previous machines couldn't. And so their advertisements went, A.B. Wilson's sewing machine, the best and only practical sewing machine, not larger than a lady's workbox for the trifling sum of $35. So not only does he not get the benefit of actually owning this device that he invented, 
he then has the indignity of having his name used in the advertising <laughs> while this other company makes money off of it. Yeah, he really did get shafted. So meanwhile, we've got Elias Howe, who he's no dummy. No, he's witnessing this and realizing <laughs> some stuff is going down. Yeah, maybe I need to maybe I need to kind of circle my little uh, my proverbial wagons here. So he decides that he's going to protect the rights to royalties from his inventions uh, and anything that could trace elements of the the products being sold back to one of his patents, right? Yeah, and from the Bradshaw model on, they mm-hmm. really were working on Howe's machine and mm-hmm. kind of making tweaks, tweaks to yeah. that. Uh, and then he really got angry because he saw Isaac Singer's, one of Isaac Singer's sons, demonstrating their sewing machine. Yeah, and uh, he said, huh, some of these elements look awfully familiar. So, of course, he ends up doing the responsible thing. You know, he contacts Singer and says, um, actually, I, I own the patent for this this machinery, this particular piece that you're using. And uh, so by law, um, I should really receive a royalty payment because you're you're using it in your device and otherwise not not uh, compensating me for it. And so um, I'd really like that $2,000 he owe me. And Singer, being the very level-headed <laughs> professional businessman, uh, decided to um, physically threaten Hal. <laughs> yeah. he uh, Singer was known for having a really bad temper. Yeah. He did some really seedy things just in business outside of this. Yeah. And when it came to this, there was one incident where he allegedly threatened and nearly threw Howe down the steps outside his office. Like, there were fisticuffs. It wasn't just yelling and arguing yeah. through lawyers. They were physically I get the embattled. Fe- I get the feeling that Singer is very much like uh, the the character uh, from, from Pirates of the Caribbean who just says, you know, they're more like guidelines. <laughs> it's he's he's not not really one to necessarily be too concerned with the actual rules of law. You know that actor that plays Jacoby Gibb would make a great Isaac Singer. Uh, he would. Uh, but how did a super smart thing? This is where we really realized that this man was just really smart and very wily. Mm-hmm. So he like some of these previous sad stories, really didn't have a lot of money mm-hmm. to get into a lot of legal battles. But he figures out a way to finance some litigation. He sells half of his interest in his patent to a man named George Bliss. And Bliss manufactured machines. He billed them as being Howe's patent, even though they were pretty different from Howe's initial design. Mm. But the money that Howe made off of this partnership was basically put into his litigation machine, and he just started fighting people. Oh, gotcha. So so what he was doing was he had made this partnership. He was making money off the partnership. Bliss is making money because of Howe's name. Mm-hmm. Howe is making money because of the partnership with Bliss. He ends up spending that money directly on lawyers to yes. attack people who are actually infringing upon his patents. Yeah, he went after Singer with great vigor, but there were a lot of other people that were also in this mix. Uh, two of them, Leroux and Blodgett, that were a pair that were making uh, a firm that were making machines that he thought infringed. There was actually a judgment in that case in Howe's favor. That was the first one to be settled. And once it it was like the first of the dominoes because yeah, so, then everybody else kind of panicked and went, oh, wow, he really has a case. Right. When you've got a precedent set like that, then the the it becomes clear that it's going to get harder and harder to win a case, uh, you know, win a defense against such a claim. If a claim has already been held up in court in one instance, then the fear is that it will be the same in future ones. And it's cheaper to settle than yeah. it is to 
to go through the process and then maybe have to be uh, forced to to hand over a larger reward in a court decision. Yeah. And Hal was basically happy to, in these settlements, be like, OK, let's set up a license like he was willing to deal with them. Right. It wasn't like he wanted to prevent other people from making their Th- machine. This is very different from what we see today. <laughs> yeah. we, we were talking about similarities, but today we got a lot of what we call them patent trolls. Yeah. These are the folks who will uh, get a patent and then either they don't make anything on their own or they make something very, very tiny. And then they just kind of sit around and wait for folks to infringe upon them. They threaten litigation in hopes of a settlement. Um, but in, but what a lot of people have said about the recent patent wars is that the patent system needs to uh, create an incentive for patent holders to license their ideas for royalties, which is exactly what Hal was doing back in this day. Yeah. I mean, he really saw the benefit of like, hey, it would be a pain in the tuchus for me to set up my own manufacturing plant and be churning these out. But all these people are already set up. I can just cut deals with them. Everybody wins. Yeah. Except not so much. No, no, it got it got ugly again. Uh, apparently, Singer was not done. Yeah, he didn't settle. And so that case dragged on. Yeah, and it got uh, ugly in public, too, right? <laughs> yes. You got this great little story about two two advertisements that ran on the same page of the New York Daily Tribune that tell very different stories. Yeah, uh, the first one reads, The sewing machine. It has been recently decided by the United States court that Elias Howe Jr. of number 305 Broadway was the originator of the sewing machine now extensively used. Call at his office and see 40 of them in constant use upon cloth, leather, etc., and judge for yourselves as to their practicality. Also see a certified copy from the records of the United States court of the injunction against Singer's machine, so called, which is conclusive. You that want sewing machines, be cautious how you purchase them of others than him or those licensed under him, else the law will compel you to pay twice over. Meanwhile, we have the other advertisement, sewing machines. (laughs) For the last two years, Elias Howe Jr. of Massachusetts has been threatening suits and injunctions against all the world who make, use, or sell sewing machines. We have sold many machines, are selling them rapidly, and have good right to sell them. The public do not acknowledge Mr. Howe's pretensions, and for the best reasons, one, machines made according to Howe's patent are of no practical use. He tried several years without being able to introduce one. Two, it is notorious, especially in New York, that Howe was not the original inventor of the machine combining the needle and shuttle, and that his claim to that is not valid. Finally, we make and sell the best sewing machines. So yeah, there's um there's some uh, vitriolic. I, I love print. how it's it's like a sewing machine telenovela. <laughs> it, yeah, there's a lot of soap opera going on here. And to make it even more soap opera-ish, Howe went after Singer for libel, but he also went after the New York Daily Tribune for printing his advertisement in the first place. So we now have Howe going after Singer both for patent infringement and for libel. Yeah. Fantastic. Just to make their relationship that much more delightful and huggy. <laughs> so at this point, Singer Singer wakes up and just says, you know, uh, you know, you were right. I was wrong. I'm the I'm going to be the bigger <laughs> man and walk away. Right. Not even a little. No. He instead just kind of goes into a rage suitable to be played only by Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> right. And right. Decides he's going to destroy Hal. So this is Butcher Bill. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally throwing a hissy. He decides he is going to seek out 
every scrap of evidence on Earth. He even uh, sought out sources in Europe and China to prove that Howe's design was not original. Uh, and the key here is that the wording in Howe's patent was really his protection mm-hmm. because he had patented the combination of the shuttle and the one eye and the eye pointed needle uh, and how they would work together. But he never claimed to have invented either of those elements. So, and so his patent remained accurate and correct and not infringing on anyone else. Because he didn't say, I invented the needle, right. I invented the shuttle. He said, I invented this combination of these two elements that work in this particular way. Correct. And that is completely valid yeah. in patent law. So, again, if you come up with a new way to use existing technology that you you can claim as an improvement over others, there's nothing stopping you from getting a patent on that. Yeah, you can patent an interaction of things. They don't have to be physical things necessarily. Right, right. Uh, however, if you remember back when we talked about Walter Hunt, who is the, the guy who invented a pretty workable sewing machine, but then kind of sold it off and abandoned it. Yeah, he never, he never uh, patented his particular idea. Singer found him. Of course he Because did. he thought that was his best shot at bringing Howe down and showing that Howe was not, in fact, the first person to invent a, a working sewing machine. So he, he, I guess he just wanted to retroactively, magically get a, pa- a, a, a precursor patent that couldn't have existed because William Hunt never patented his that invention. Is, that is exactly what he tried to do. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this reminds me, I mean... There, there are entire books written about some of the more ridiculous things that have happened in patent law around the world, but particularly in the United States. So another good example of uh, some shenanigans that went on with patents involves Tesla and radio. Oh, yeah. Because Tesla was uh, awarded the patent in the United States uh, the same year that Marconi actually filed for a patent. And in mm-hmm. fact, he, he received the patent a month before or two months before Marconi had filed for a patent. In the U.S. And then famously, several years later, the patent office awarded, they, they went back on their decision, took the patent away from Tesla and awarded it to Marconi. So even though that happens later, you know, it, it, this, this, the events we're talking about here are earlier in the timeline. It's not unusual for us to see these kind of crazy political dealings. Yeah. And again, remember, uh, you know, this wasn't a time when everything was duplicated and there was a trail of what had happened when. Sure. It would be easy to fudge things. So, so it's, it's reasonable that Singer could think that he was going to finagle something out of this. So what what happens due to this, this claim? Well, first, Singer hires an engineer, William Whiting, uh, to basically help resurrect Hunt's designs. He's going to go back to those original blueprints and schematics, and he's mm. going to build it to prove that this one works and it's great and how you got nothing. Right. Uh, and <laughs> uh, the Scientific American at the time, as this was all bubbling up, actually published a pretty um, scathing article about Hunt asserting, because he was like, oh, yeah, I did invent the sewing machine. Now that he sees that there's money in it and this yeah. is a litigious thing. Right. They basically said that his claims were rusty. He didn't, he had no hat in this game. Like, right. What was he trying to do? And no legal basis, really. Uh, but there was a trial at the patent office. Mm-hmm. There were hundreds of pages of testimony. I mean, it went on forever. Singer dragged everybody in that he could think of that had ever touched anything that vaguely resembled a sewing machine. Um, 
Patent Commissioner Charles Mason, though, ruled in favor of Elias Howe on May 24th of 1854. And the big part of Hunt's loss, even though he really did have a pretty good working machine, was that he didn't do anything to patent it or protect it 18 years prior. Right. So... Uh, like the patent office can't can't rule in favor of someone who hasn't actually gone through the process. Of yeah, the patent. yeah. The commissioner was like, "What are you trying to do? You didn't. You don't have these rights." Yeah. Uh, Hunt did try to appeal to the circuit court of uh, the District of Columbia, but that did not go so well either. Mason's ruling was upheld. So then, how emboldened, oof, by this victory. <laughs> decides to start going after other people that he has has perceived as infringing against his patents. Yep, everybody that was selling a Singer machine, he went after. Wow, I, that was a lot of people. Yeah, and he asked for preliminary injunctions against all of them to shut down sales while they went through their court cases. So he goes through this process, uh, bringing it all the way to courts when necessary. Um, and the... They, what happened, the poor singer at this point, not, not really poor singer because he's kind of a jerk, but, but you've got, you've got how going after the people who are selling singer sewing machines or or incorporating them. Then what they're doing instead, you know, they get attacked by Hal. They turn around, they attack Singer, saying, you got us into this. Yeah, you had no right to sell us the licenses that you sold us because you didn't have a right to it. Yeah, you didn't own the the technology that you were licensing to us, and and that's why we're in trouble. Yeah, so, so it's so litigious. By 1854, keep in mind, this started in, the, in, in 1850. Yeah. By 1854, Singer and Hal settle their lawsuit. And, uh, it's announced in Scientific American. This is a big deal. Yeah. This is, this is not tiny news. This is like the, this is just like when you go on to Google News and you see like Samsung and Apple settle lawsuit. That's, that's equivalent. Yeah. It's kind of like, it reminds me of when, uh, those first like headlines were happening about, no, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates actually like each other. It's fine. And it, it's like that level of, wait, what? We didn't think that's how this worked. Uh, except there was very little pushing down of stairs in any of them. Right. <laughs> well, what, what's really cool about this? Okay. So this didn't end all litigation. There was still some Not continuing no. on. Uh, but by 1856, we get the president of Grover and Baker, which was one of the companies involved in the suits that were, uh, that were involving Elias Howe. I feel uh, like we should back up because we skipped that people tried to then sue Howe for improving oh, on his yeah, original sure, design. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so Howe basically at this point was the, um, you know, the czar of the sewing machine in- in- industry. He right. owned the patent to the biggest chunk of it yeah. and was licensing those out. And he thought, well, you know, I could really tweak that original design as well. Mm-hmm. But every tweak he made, other people claimed they had already made. So then he was getting sued by people for patent infringement for improving on his original design. Okay, so now... It's a litigation been... festival, basically. So n- now you've got people saying, all right, well, these improvements you're making, we've already made and we've already patented, so... So it's become a huge mess. By 1856, you get the president of Grover and Baker, which was one of the the companies that was involved in these cases against Howe about these improvements to the original designs, and comes up with a concept called the combination, uh, which, by the way, these days we would call this a patent pool. Yeah. Uh, And a patent pool is essentially when you get a whole bunch of different stakeholders who all own different patents that are involved in the same general technology to essentially come to an agreement saying, all right, we're going to pool all these patents together. And as long as we are all officially part of this group and we all agree to operate by these rules, 
we're not going to sue the pants off each other whenever we make an improvement to that technology or incorporate that technology into our products. Yes. Uh, so, make sure that everyone's getting the royalties that they deserve. Exactly. So uh, the president of Grover and Baker was Orlando B. Potter. And he, you know, I, I feel like he's a person that's not very well known historically, mm-hmm. but he really deserves a lot of kudos because he was really the first person to go, hey, you guys, we're only hurting ourselves. We're kind of being idiots. Yeah. And he really established this concept of what is now a patent pool. Uh, so he was like, let's stop, you know, holding up everybody's production. Let's right. stop throwing our money at lawyers. We don't need that. We can work this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he got them all to join their forces. They pooled their patents. They made one unified combination patent for sewing machines. How initially was not on board with this. Well, no, when you own a huge chunk of the landscape, then you feel like you have the most to lose and in that he, kind of agreement. He definitely felt that way. Uh, but eventually he did agree to it. He had made some pretty heavy stipulations and the other parties agreed. Basically, he was going to get a $5 royalty on every sewing machine that was sold in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And for every sewing machine that was exported, he would get a dollar. Now, remember, this is in 1856, so these are not paltry sums. No, this is this is significant money. So in the next 11 years, so between 1856 uh, and 1867, when Howe's patent expired, he made more than $2 million. And that's $2 million in 1800s money. Yeah, that's way more. But he would be a kajillionaire. Yeah, crazy, crazy. Rich. That's my math. Crazy. He's rich. No, kajillionaire. I think that was accurate uh, <laughs> estimation there. Um, and he requested a a an extension to that patent, but was denied. Uh, patents do, like I said earlier, expire. And when they expire, you lose that exclusivity. You cannot demand licenses for it. That technology, that implementation of that technology then belongs to the public. So anyone can uh, create any kind of device using that sort of approach um, that uh, was originally covered by that patent that's now expired. So he doesn't get the extension he wanted and he dies of a broken heart. He doesn't really die of a broken heart. His heart was broken earlier in his life when his wife died, but uh, it did not kill him to the best of our knowledge. Uh, however, some say that it did kind of spur his litigation Decline. fest because yeah. he just he needed to focus on something else. <laughs> um, but Singer, of course, continued to uh, work his magic in the sewing machine industry. And now, as a consequence, you know, he's really the name we remember more than Elias Howe. Yeah. Yeah, you see that name all over the place. He was exceptional at marketing. Very much, again, kind of like Edison, who was brilliant in many ways. And one of the big ones was that he was a very smart businessman and marketer. So, yeah, this is, um, again, you can see the parallels with modern patent wars. Everything from the cooperation of various companies to make sure that uh, business can continue. The arguments that... Patent litigation harms innovation. Yeah. That that pat, that sitting on patents harms innovation. These are not new ideas. No, no. You got to look at you know early to mid nineteenth century, and you can see it all there as well. So, uh, very interesting that there's so much in common with what we see today. Guys, thank you for joining me on this classic episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you found it as fascinating as I did. It always is interesting to me to see how these older technologies actually ended up having some very interesting modern problems associated with them, like this whole patent war situation. If you guys would like me to discuss any particular topic, maybe it's a technology or a company or a person 
that's in tech that you think is really important. Maybe you want me to have a specific guest on as either an interview or a co-host. Let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram and you can join me live when I record this show on Wednesdays and Fridays. Just go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 